0: Welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking to an expert on the subject of delirium, Professor Sharon Inouye of Harvard Medical School and the Aging Brain Center at Hebrew Senior Life. Hello, Sharon.
1: Hello, Niall.
0: We're going to be talking about a viewpoint which you've published in the Lancet Psychiatry, which is called Doing Damage in Delirium, the Hazards of Antipsychotic Treatment in Elderly People. So to begin with, I think we, we should probably cover a bit of the background. Delirium is pretty common.
1: Yes, delirium is an exceedingly common problem, particularly for the older um, population. It's um, seen frequently in settings where there's acute illness or major surgery or in institutional set- settings such as aged aged home. It yeah. occurs in up to half of patients actually during the course of hospitalization. So I think you can right. see that it's very common and leads to poor outcomes. Yeah.
0: Some of the symptoms really would, which lead to I suppose challenges for the mental health care team and for the healthcare team in general are the, the agitation and inappropriate behaviors and so on. I wonder if you could give us a picture of, of what we'd see on the ward
1: between 30 and 50 percent depending on what um, studies or populations you're looking at, of patients will develop agitation during the course of their delirium. And the way that looks um, on, on, the, on the ward is patients become, you know, quite wild in some ways. They can be you know physically agitated, sometimes combative or even violent, um, striking out at family members and care staff and they can also be hallucinating, delusional, saying inappropriate things, behaving in an inappropriate fashion, sometimes um recently I saw a patient who just um stripped off her clothes and was, you know, wandering about her room and it was very difficult um to get her to sit down. That's some of the manifestations that you can see also loud shouting and um Wild, um, disorganised thinking as well.
0: So these are, are symptoms which are very distressing for the individual experiencing them, and they're also very distressing for the carers and also f- for the family. It's clear why, in such situations, it can be tempting to uh, to physicians to to reach for the prescription pad, if you like, and to to think of prescribing antipsychotics. What would the rationale be behind prescribing antipsychotic medication?
1: I think that. You know, obviously patients and family members and the staff caring for the patients can become quite distressed in these situations. I think that the clear indications for treatment with an antipsychotic would be if the patient is posing a danger either to themselves or to other people through their aggressive or violent behavior. And if a patient is going to be pulling out, you know, lines or tubes that are needed for their treatment, then clearly um, that would be an indication for the antipsychotics. I think, though, that we really try, if it's possible, to calm the patient through behavioral strategy, through de-escalation and verbal reassurance, and through involving the family in reorientation and calming You know, nine times out of 10, you can get people calmed down through these behavioral Mm -hmm. approaches. But obviously, if that can't be done, and if there is going to be a a hazard for the interruption of um, needed medical treatment, then the antipsychotics would be indicated. Mm -hmm.
0: So that word hazard, what we're talking about really is benefit versus risk, which is the story of an awful lot of medicine. Could you talk us through maybe maybe some of the risks that are involved in antipsychotic prescription and and why you you refer to it as, as really doing damage?
1: That's a really good um, question, Niall, and I think it's not really something that has been um, well known to clinicians. I know when even when I was in medical training, I was not really fully informed about the side effects of the antipsychotics, and so. You know, there are, they are medications associated with quite a number of side effects. They do cause sedation as well as increased confusion. And so they can actually cause a mm-hmm. delirium, kind of ironically. But also there are other, um, you know, milder side effects like hypotension, dizziness, orthostasis. They actually lead to a significantly increased risk of falls. Also urinary incontinence and um, a, a urinary obstruction and an increased risk of urinary infection. But then more seriously and the ones that we really worry about are some of the cardiac side effects. They Mm -hmm. do result in QT prolongation, which can lead to cardiac arrhythmias um, and um, serious life-threatening arrhythmias. And there is a risk of sudden cardiac death, which is about 2.54 times increased with both typical and atypical antipsychotics. And so there is a strikingly increased mortality rate associated with um, prescription of antipsychotics. And that's most prominent in the elderly population.
0: My experience of working in old age care is that patients come in with with a certain type of of presentation. And then in hospital, one of the tendencies can be for the prescription list to, to get longer and longer every day. And for the mm-hmm. patients to be discharged on a, on, a, on a huge list of medications, uh, do people sometimes continue taking antipsychotics even after they the delirium's resolved and they've been discharged from hospital? Is that a problem?
1: Yes, actually, that is, that is a very um, huge problem. And there's um, actually been a study investigating this that showed that up to a third of people who are newly started on antipsychotics in the hospital. Will continue on them um, after discharge, and even when there's no longer an indication and so I think that's another clear and important danger that the you know intention of short term therapy can often turn in to a long term therapy, so clinicians should be aware that if they are driven to use these drugs, they must you know reassess it very frequently, and the goal should be even writing the order just for 24 hours or 48 hours, and then reassessing at that time so that it won't become a long-term treatment associated with a lot more adverse effects and um, increased mortality.
0: So implied in what you say and set out uh, very clearly in your viewpoint is that you believe that too many antipsychotics are prescribed to people with delirium.
1: That's correct. I think right now there really is a tendency for Mm over-prescription, in large part because I think that the physicians and nurses are not aware of very good alternative approaches that are available in terms of non-pharmacologic strategies to, to handle delirium. And so those are some of the alternatives that we've we hope to lay out in the viewpoint.
0: So let's talk through some of the ways in which maybe the prescription of these these drugs can be reduced a bit. Um, I suppose it starts off with really prevention of delirium in the first place.
1: Yes, yeah, so that I think is a very uh, important point mm-hmm. is that um, delirium prevention is, uh, you know, probably the most effective means to us out of this problem in the first place and prevention of delirium has been documented to be mm-hmm. very effective in nearly half of cases are felt to be preventable.
0: And what kinds of measures would one take to prevent delirium?
1: And so those are very well laid out in the NICE um, guidelines mm-hmm. for delirium out of the UK and they include um, many non-pharmacologic strategies um, including things like um, reorientation procedures, um, therapeutic activities that are fun activities and orienting activities for the patient at the bedside, such as word games and um, current events and the like, exercise and walking. I think keeping patients up and walking while they're in the hospital is extremely important. Attending to nutrition and hydration, making sure patients have enough to drink on a daily basis attending to sensory deprivation and making sure that if they're visually or hearing impaired, that they're provided appropriate adaptations and communication um, to keep them, you know, in tune with their environment, avoiding um, psychoactive drugs, such as drugs that have either anticholinergic Mm -hmm. or other um, psychoactive side effects, And trying to use non-pharmacologic strategies for sleep, so things Mm -hmm. like a back rub, relaxation music, a warm drink like herbal tea or Mm -hmm. warm milk at bedtime can be very effective um, for sleep and avoiding, you know, sort of standing use of um, sleep medication.
0: And if delirium happens, you would recommend as a first line the non-pharmacological techniques. You talked about persuasion and, and talking to people earlier.
1: Yeah, so there are de-escalation strategies that are really well outlined in the NICE guidelines as well. And these can involve sort of extensions of what I've talked about, sometimes relaxation approaches, you know, gentle communication involving the family and the nurses at the bedside. In the U.S., we can sometimes provide trained companions mm-hmm. in these kinds of situations. And I think that's something if there's someone who's very skilled, a psychiatric liaison nurse, for instance, who can help, you know, train the nurses and the staff and set up a, a strategy at the bedside, that can be very, very effective. Because even if the drugs help, you know, in the immediate short term, you really need to be able to work with that person in a, in a longer-term sense to keep them engaged and calm and oriented. And a lot of times the person experiencing the delirium, when you talk to them later, the thing that they remember is just feeling very fearful mm. and not understanding what's going on around them. And so just sort of a constant reassurance that, you know, you're in the hospital, we're trying to get you well, oh, here's what this IV line is. It's giving you healing medications. You know, you have a pneumonia and these are the medications that are going to heal you. And just saying that on kind of a very calm, repetitive basis.
0: So so essentially being kind to people.
1: Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's a very, you know, humanistic approach that we need to take, but also Mm -hmm. realizing that the short-term memory becomes very impaired and people are frightened and they're not understanding what's going on around them. And they may be having, you know, delusional thinking on top of that and fear. And so just the the reassurance that if you're a nurse and you're coming in to do procedures or vital signs that you're just constantly explaining what you're doing in a very soothing way, no quick movements, you know, everything Mm -hmm. very, very calming. And I think that that works very effectively as long as it's just done, you know, repeatedly and it becomes part of the care of that patient.
0: And a lot of this, I think, comes down to resources as well in having wards, which are well-resourced environments and a good ratio of nurses to patients.
1: Yes, that's very, very true. And so the, the good resourced units but also the trained staff you know so that they're Mm -hmm. very trained and know what to do for the agitated delirious patient and then there's also ways that family members can be engaged to help again families often find delirium very frightening Mm -hmm. and so it does take education and engagement of the family so that they can see how they can really help and also um In some settings, we've been able to use trained volunteers as well to help with these types of calming and reorientation and the sleep protocol and relaxation treatment and so forth. So that might be another option in some settings.
0: And you've also um, written in the paper about uh, a role for our our much-neglected friends, the pharmacists.
1: Yes, absolutely. And pharmacists can be very very vital and important in in these settings, both to help if the pharmacologic management is needed in choosing the optimal drug at the lowest dose for the least amount of time in monitoring for the side effects, but also to assess for interactions with other Mm -hmm. drugs, to assess whether there's any drugs in the patient's current list that might be contributing. And um, to help with the overall process of delirium prevention, but also delirium management. I think the pharmacists play a vital role.
0: So the answer really is to use every member of the team, as opposed to just prescribing a tablet.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's that's a really key message, that delirium prevention and management really takes a very well integrated and knowledgeable and experienced um, team working together. That's the way we can really change the healthcare system.
0: So delirium is almost, you you might say, an index of the quality of care, the way in which it's managed.
1: Yes, absolutely. I really think of delirium as a quality indicator of Mm -hmm. the, directly of the quality of care of um, elders in the hospital setting. I, I think you're exactly right that You know, delirium is so common and it's so integrally linked with the processes of care that when you see it start to happen at very high rates, it's really a time to look at that healthcare system and how can you realign it so it's better serving the patient.
0: Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, And I'd also like to thank our listeners. If you'd like to read the viewpoint, it is accessible on the Lancet Psychiatry website. So for now, uh, goodbye, and we hope that you will join us again for another Lancet Psychiatry podcast.